Welcome again to the Asian Education Podcast, which is produced by the UNESCO Chair here at Kyushu University in Japan in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. And we're very happy to have with us this time Dr. Brenda Dobia from Australia, who is exceptionally uh, an expert both in psychology. She's a trained clinical psychologist and has expertise in cultural studies. And this has made her work on social and emotional learning uh, particularly interesting and important. She's also worked on social ecology in the context of education and worked more broadly on questions of ethics and morality in relation to education and education for sustainability. So today we're going to discuss some work that she's done recently in relation to Australia and social and emotional learning policies and practice relating especially to minority or indigenous communities in Australia. But we'll also talk to her about some work that she's done in India uh, and her involvement with projects operated there by the Mahatma Gandhi Institute. So thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview with us today, Brenda. My pleasure. I'm honoured to be invited. Thanks a lot. Well, Yoko Mochizuki, who's co-hosting this episode with me, is going to kick us off with a a sort of starter for 10. Uh, So, Brenda, uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, how and why you came to be involved with SEL, social and emotional learning. And maybe you can start with the definition of SEL. Well, yeah, I was working on the National Primary Schools Mental Health Initiative in Australia called Kids Matter. And social emotional learning was one of the pillars there. So we defined it in terms of learning the kinds of skills for friendship, for managing emotions, for getting on with others. Um and that those skills were equally significant to education as academic literacy skills. So that that was kind of the short version that was really about making it accessible for parents and teachers. And, and that was the particular brief that I had when I worked on developing resources for Kids Matter. And Kids Matter wasn't just a school's It was based in schools, but it wasn't just for schools and teachers. It was for parents as well. And the idea was actually talking about social ecology, a kind of social ecological frame in which, you know, parents and schools together could support kids' mental health. So um, one of the things that we found in that work um, was that although there were several planks in there one was positive school community which was sort of getting everybody working together second one was social emotional learning and kids matter adopted the castle framework for social emotional learning which meant that um, the idea is that you use evidence-based resources across the curriculum and you make sure that you're having regular lessons that kind of safe model of um, sequenced, active, uh, what's the F? Mm, Frequent, I think, (laughs) maybe, and engage, something like that. Um, 
so that, you know, there can be a developmental uh, kind of approach. And then there was also parenting support and there was specific material on mental health. That was piloted in something like 200 schools nationally. I was involved in it. And there were some really good outcomes from the pilot in terms of kids' mental health. The things that the schools found easiest and most appealing to implement was SEL. Um we did some, oh, well, I, I, I put together a whole lot of resources that would help parents understand because we know that it's not just the curriculum approach. It's actually how does this get generalised beyond the classroom setting? Um, and I think that often gets forgotten, actually. You know, the tendency is schools want to pick up a package, we can teach this, and, you know, there's some useful elements in that but it does then tend to define what needs to be taught according to the program that's given and I guess if I step back and take a critical perspective on that really we know that uh, social and emotional development happens in context you know and different children will be exposed to different kinds of influences. They'll also have different kinds of challenges that they're exposed to. Um, and I think as a clinician, you kind of take that on board. And I think this might be, be part of the issue that you, you've identified before, Ed, that um, when you translate some of that into a school setting, the capacity to assess where that child is and what might be helpful for them I think gets uh, obscured a bit because you're wanting to take everybody along a set path. Um, and that it can work for some. I mean, there's definitely, I, I, I actually think that some of the good outcomes from the Kids Matter trial, most of the good outcomes from the Kids Matter trial were from the social and emotional learning work. Uh, and, in fact, the best outcomes were for the kids who were more at the pointy end of mental health issues. Now, I'm not going to say that's necessarily been sustained over time because I could talk about other things that have happened since, uh, but I do think in that trial that, you know, the, the schools were dedicated and the teachers were dedicated and um, for kids who might otherwise have been marginalised because of their behaviours to actually be getting something that's helping them think through and manage some of the issues that they were dealing with was probably helpful. You, you were talking just then about stepping back and, and taking a more critical perspective and maybe looking at the um, the push for SEL. Mm in a, a wider context and thinking also about the context for the students, what's mm -hmm. happening to them outside the school and how that relates to the, um, the teaching or the implementation of SEL programs. And when you talk about, is it um, Kids Matter, the uh, program in Australia? Um, Which has since been... Been moved along. It's now BU, and it's been sort of streamlined. Oh, okay. 
what so the focus of it has been narrowed but i mean this is uh, a program that's happening in australia but in the context of a wider movement for scl that's international and maybe we can talk a little bit about you know where that fashion for scl uh has come from and you know why why Mm. has this uh discourse of sel if you like arisen in the early 21st century gathered momentum and and credibility in uh particularly in policy making circles Mm. um can you say anything about that well yeah i mean I think, I mean, there's obviously some politics behind it. I think there, my reading of it, um, particularly with the spearheading from Castle in in America, my understanding of the way that Castle developed was you, you had a number of people developing programs for schools that were in this general area. And I guess in America, which is quite different to Australia, that there wasn't a, an overarching uh, curriculum. People were doing their own things, right? And there were people in various university settings who were coming up with programs that were, had to do broadly with social emotional learning. Um, and it was part of being able to get more traction, I think, that they kind of came together. And out of that, they identified you know, what were the commonalities and this became Castle. Now, what I think is interesting in that is is that it became very skills-focused. The idea that emotions are competencies. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. We we can teach these things. So, so it, you know, in part there's a there's a kind of behavioural kind of mindset behind that. I mean, we do so. Well, people can change. We can teach them. Just because they've had that background doesn't mean they can't change. You, you can learn new skills. That's a whole kind of framework movement in psychology, in education, I guess, and that's kind of useful. I think the, the, the difficulty comes in when you universalise it, um, and when you, and when you're not sort of looking, okay, so what's the purpose of this exactly? What, who identifies what are the skills? Who identifies the levels of competency in the skills and how we're going to assess them? I, I, I get a little bit worried when I see how, a, how, how much that influence of curriculum, from my perspective, <laughs> uh can sort of override what, what override differences. You know, we want a common curriculum and we kind of override differences and then everybody has to meet that standard. So where it where it came, well, from my perspective, where it came undone most evidently, I wouldn't say this is the only place in Australia, was when we looked at what was happening for Aboriginal students. So, you know, I'd worked on the pilot and, and my brief had been to develop these overarching resources, which we did, and they were kind of well-received. Um, but I, I had been saying to them at the time, but, you know, this is for mainstream. For different cultures, we should have different uh, approaches and then it was, well, hang on, we've got this 
this funding to do an Aboriginal adaptation, which I always put in inverted commas. You know, that's a really back-to-front way of doing things from a cultural perspective. But anyway, that's what they wanted to do. And they thought that, well, we'll just change a bit of language and we'll change the pictures. And and I said, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Let's 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 first check. How about we go back to some of these pilot schools where we had a significant Aboriginal population and see what's happened because we've only got the data broadly. What happened for the Aboriginal students? And so I, you know, I went back um, to to I selected like uh, out of two hundred, I think there were ten schools with twenty percent or more Aboriginal kids, and I went back. And lo and behold, there was very limited engagement. Uh, and, you know, I could go through the reasons why. I mean, largely because it was very white and mainstream. It was, there wasn't a sense of connection. There were a couple of schools where there were better outcomes. In terms of SEL, only one school. And what they did was first of all, they had a lot of Aboriginal educators and they put it in their hands and they adapted according to what they felt. And they also selected an SEL program that had not been highly ranked in the in the Kids Matter thing, but actually they felt suited them and it was one that had a circle format and, the, and, and one of the ways of teaching uh, in it included that kids have the right to pass. And what was really interesting from the Aboriginal educators, they said that right to pass, that was such a critical piece because in a culture in which the learning is not so sort of directive and in which the assumption is that children should have autonomy, but they also learn by observing others there's a strong sense of shame about standing out and putting yourself forward. What that right to pass allowed them to do was to watch what happens and see and then choose to get involved when they were ready. It made a huge difference to their capacity to engage. Uh, and so there were elements of that 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 were much more suited to, to the way of learning and also much more inclusive so it's, it takes it away from the didactic model of this is it to much more about co-learning. So, that you know, those are specific insights from there. And then, and then later on in some other research that I did with Sue Roffey on her work around circles uh, with the Aboriginal girls, we were able to further what some of those principles were that were making a difference, you know, and particularly around things like agency and safety and but but young people learning from each other about how to manage the, these sorts of things rather than this is the way to do it, you know. Like these are issues that we all face, so let's talk about how we manage it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, so what you're talking about, I think, is the, well, perhaps it's a bit obvious, but the sort of socialization role of SEL mm -hmm. uh, and how 
you know, what we mean by socialization, what we're trying to achieve by socialization mm-hmm. is conditioned by what we think society should look like uh, mm-hmm. and that vision of society, um, how we should operate is going to be quite different mm-hmm. from place to place or from community to community. Mm-hmm. But the standard approaches to SEL don't generally take much account of that. They are overwhelmingly focused on uh, individuals and adapting individuals uh, to, um, you know, a given social order, which is generally left quite vague or ill-defined because it's assumed to be universal. Mm-hmm. That's It's not assumed to need much discussion mm-hmm. or definition. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, many people who perhaps don't work in the world of education or aren't educational researchers uh, will think back to their own schooling and will have experienced something like civic education or maybe religious education. And they'll think, you know, social emotional learning, how does that relate to those sorts of subjects? And I guess to some extent what social and emotional learning is uh, or what it ends up being in many instances is a sort of highly individuated, depoliticized approach to the sorts of issues that something like civic education or possibly religious education might have addressed in the past. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. I think that kind of focus on skills loses that. And and I'm really, you know, I was really interested to to see in the, um, there was a volume that I contributed to on social emotional learning in Asia and the Pacific. And there were a number of really great examples from East Asian countries, um, particularly Korea uh, had a really strong example, I think, where they were actually much more, in, and, and and maybe Singapore was, it was another really strong example, as I recall. They were embedding SEL with with traditional values and philosophies and, and, you know, how you teach that kind of moral code and that has to be integrated into it. I think that's really important. I, you know what I think is, and, and I'm, I'm kind of more and more, you know, as I sort of uh, continue on and, and, and notice what's happening in the world and what's going on for, for, for young people, the sense of what the end goals are, you know, who are we becoming I could go back to the Earth Charter on this. You know, what are we here for and who are we becoming? Uh, to me, that needs to be kind of central, a central drive, especially for, for adolescents, but but even for younger kids as well. Like, you know, why are we doing this? And And if we understand where we're going and how we need to come together as a community, which is really crucial, I think, these days, but in a way that makes space for diversity and values, all of that, and understands, like from a social emotional development point of view, kids don't start from the same place. The things that impact us emotionally, even, you know, as adults, it's, it's not like, okay, learn that curriculum, like other kind of intellectual ideas and build on it. It's like, well... 
you get affected by different things that happen. <laughs> and those can be really big issues, you know, and even the people who've learned all their, you know, theory about it, things, things you know, can really get in your way. And when there's trauma of some kind or, you know, things that happen to the family, you can't expect those kids to develop kind of in lockstep with what you've defined they should be able to do. You've got to understand that there's there's all those other influences. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned earlier uh, the mental health focus of some of the um, work that happens in the context of SEL. And, you know, that can be a good thing in in some ways or or up to a point uh, Mm. and, and necessary. Uh, for many children, perhaps, or for some children. But if we're thinking about problems that children or adolescents may experience, for example, to do with anxiety, uh, issues that may make them anxious, reasons they may have to be anxious, well, that can be perhaps seen from a mental health perspective. But there can also be very good reasons for children or adolescents to experience anxiety. Uh, and when we frame it in the context only of mental health, the tendency mm-hmm. can be to think that, or, or, or to uh, talk as if this is something that need, that is, it's a problem, you know, inside the child's mm-hmm. head, or it's, it's, an indiv- it's a problem of the individual child mm-hmm. uh, that requires some sort of indiv- intervention to, to readjust them, uh, mm-hmm. to make them feel less anxious. But I was reading an article just this morning about um, how anxiety over climate change is, uh, according to the article I was reading, uh, a big source of mental health problems now for children, actually in Australia. It was talking about Mm -hmm. Australia. Now, Mm -hmm. if I'm an adolescent and I'm anxious about climate change, is that a mental health problem or is it actually an entirely rational response to the state of the world? And, uh, you know, therefore uh, something that needs to be discussed in school and needs to be uh, related to political, economic, uh, ecological and, and other problems, um, which brings us back to the issue of politics or depoliticization. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so how much do you think that sort of, um, you know, connection between emotions, anxiety that young people may be experiencing and the perhaps very good reasons they may have for experiencing that anxiety? How much is that brought into the classroom in the context? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's it, uh, this is all so interesting and topical. I, I'm actually working with Psychology for a Safe Climate and just having conversations about that earlier. Um, yes, it, it's really problematic, especially with climate anxiety, which is the 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 term that's common commonly used now. It's really problematic to be putting that into a mental health framework because it pathologizes it. But this is an existential anxiety. This is about the politics. This is and the, and young people's anxiety is exacerbated by their sense that governments are doing nothing and they're kicking the can down the road for them to have to deal with it. 
and 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 saying, "You young people, you're going to solve it all. <laughs> we don't have to do anything." <laughs> so, you know, but you know that denial is a defense against anxiety. So, you know, we could, and sometimes I'll say that to young people. You know, those guys, those politicians who seem who think they know everything, actually, what they're doing is is camouflaging their own anxiety, dealing with their own anxiety by saying it doesn't exist. That's one form of coping. <laughs> so there is a pathology, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, in, in the minds of the young people. It's, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, not to be not to be anxious is, is the problem, is the threat, really, in that sense. I mean, I, look, I do think because I do, I have gone back into doing some clinical work, I do see that there are young people uh, where there's other issues going on where it can tip them over the edge. But, um, it, you know, young people's climate anxiety is something that, Adults and politicians need to be taking account of the solution. If there's not that there's one solution, but key solution for climate anxiety is action. It's it's ESD. That's what we want. There um, is transformative in education that empowers you to know what you can do about it. You know, yeah. and that's the problem when we focus just on that on the anxiety as that and we pathologize it and we bring the mental health thing in then you know you it's it's the did i was it was it you mentioned or somebody mentioned you know the happiness industry it, it, you know and that's again a very western concept about well-being you, if you go into asian concepts it's it's not that you know it's it's um it's contentment or it's you know, or in an Indian setting, it's it's kind of one pointedness. It's 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 that equilibrium that you're after. It's not happiness. Yes, that's a very interesting point. Um, but the uh, the point that you raised about um, uh, well, in response to my comment about you know the rational uh, sources of anxiety over climate change and and the need for you know action in response to that actually. Um, so last week, as I was returning home from my university here, uh, when I arrived at the local train station, I found a solitary university student standing outside with a little cardboard placard saying Fridays for the future. Mm. And this was uh, a, a one-man protest <laughs> against Japan's stance on... Uh, well, on climate change and on um, the energy transition that's needed in response to climate change. But this is the first time I have seen any student in my university or in my city out on the streets protesting about this mm. or, or protesting in any way, in any fashion, uh, anywhere. Um, and you mentioned earlier the sort of adaptations of social and emotional learning or what we might sort of see as social and emotional learning uh, to different cultural contexts. And you mentioned the, the example of Korea. Uh, I mean, socialization is a 
very large, very explicit focus of education, of schooling here in Japan. And there are many good things, I think, to say about the way that socialization is um, accorded such importance in the system here. But one thing that that does do is actively deter young people from standing out or speaking mm -hmm. out. I mean, you referred to that earlier as a characteristic of um, some indigenous cultures in Australia. Um, and, you know, there are tr always trade-offs in any sort of culture. And one example of such a trade-off is, you know, the, the sense of group identity or group cohesion uh, and the, the freedom that individuals feel to speak out or to criticize the group. And the stronger the group cohesion, the more that's valued in any culture, the more deterred individuals will be from speaking out. But that's very much what we find here in Japan. Mm -hmm. The sort of, if you like, social and emotional cost that individuals see in speaking out is exceptionally mm -hmm. high. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in some respects, particularly when you're faced with an urgent need to change in response to something like climate change, that is a serious issue. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's <laughs> more of a comment than a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we, we're seeing the difficulties of change at multiple levels, you know change societally in order to make the changes that we know are needed. Um, despite, you know, all the work that was done on ESD, and Yoko might like to, to, to talk to this, you know, there's some fantastic frameworks about transformative education, about cultivating young people's agency, uh, citizenship to be able to make change. Uh which is kind of critical. I mean, that's what the young strikers are doing. <laughs> you know, actually they're enacting all of that, um, which I think is fantastic. You know, there, there's many kind of costs and challenges that come with that, um, you know, and how does education respond? And I, and I would say just, just on the social-emotional learning, do we then kind of teach them the individual skills to manage your anxiety or do we teach them and support them to work together to take action to tackle the issues yeah so i mean you mentioned education for sustainable development esd and you know perhaps yoko might like to come in here and, mm. and talk a little bit about the work that we were all in in various ways involved in with the mahatma gandhi institute in delhi uh, where Yoko and I worked on a project looking at uh, how different countries around Asia um, interpreted education for sustainable development, uh, interpret that sort of particular target of the sustainable development goal for education. Uh, and then uh, you, Brenda, subsequently worked with Yoko on a project that was supposed to further the promotion of education for sustainable development and other worthy goals in Asia and more broadly. Um, and perhaps we could talk a little bit about your experience of that. Um, but Yoko, maybe you'd like to say a little bit more about 
you know, how all of that came about and what it was supposed to achieve. So the original idea was to do sort of like a follow-up study of our rethinking schooling report that came out in 2017. I was asked to do another report, but with a focus on social-emotional learning. So I was looking for researchers uh, who are looking at SEL, but not as a, like a universal standardized intervention, but uh, looking at how SEL is interpreted in different cultural and national contexts. That's how I uh, got in touch with Brenda. Uh, and then we talked and, you know, I was very excited to do this report, but then uh, I was told that we have to use this universal SEL framework to look at uh, different countries. And basically this rethinking learning report on social emotional learning, um, until this report is finalized, I, I'm not supposed to start my study. So I was waiting for this report to come out and then I think it only came out during COVID I think 2020. So, but I think Brenda, you were involved in the writing of rethinking mm. learning report, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I it was. I, I was hopeful because, you know, just to contextualize, but you know, I, I spoke about the work that I did with Kids Matter and the work on the Aboriginal adaptation, and then I was also teaching education for sustainability to pre-service teachers. Um, and I'd been, I guess, with the psych background, I'd been sort of cued in from, I think I started in 2010 with that. You know, the, the, the issues for young people learning about environmental concerns, and I had always tuned my, my pre-service teachers into saying, well, you know, you've got to understand where young kids are going to, how young kids are going to receive this information because if they hear about all the issues that are happening and see that adults are doing nothing, that elevate, that is going to elevate their anxiety. <laughs> um, but if you can support them to understand it, there ha- you know, there has to be well, agency and that's why education for sustainability and I would tell my teachers and, you know, we, we're in deep shit here, <laughs> but that's why the only thing we can do in this unprecedented times is learn our way out of it, and that's why you're in the box seat here together. And I'd say don't look at me because I'm part of the generation that stuffed it up, but, you know, we got to learn our way forward. So I'd been doing all of that kind of work, you know, subsequent to, to the mental health and SEL work. So I was quite excited when I saw that, you, you know, your report on on uh, ESD and thinking, okay, let's go to SEL and let's, let's bring the thinking about sustainability together with, you know, what do kids need to, to you know, they're dealing, this, this stuff is big. So how do we support their agency and how does how does SEL itself have to reorient towards this new reality? Because I think, you know, we really need to understand, you know, for for young people, for, for, for kids, they're looking at what what kind of world 
Am I becoming an adult in? Where, where's my scope? Where's my space to do something? And if the world's looking like it's about to fall apart, that's pretty scary. <laughs> you know, so let's equip them for that. Um, so that that was kind of the frame of reference that I came in with. Um, and, it, and it didn't turn out quite like that because what we ended up with was a, a frame that was that was very kind of we've already got this body of work in Castle. There's all the evidence there. Um, and I think the the keen interest was to make it a brain-based thing. So that, I mean, there has been so much interest in the brain and, and uh, I don't know, as someone who's studied psychology for many years, to me that was a given. But anyway, it's become a really interesting arena for many people i think what was challenging is like well yeah okay that's that may be but what's we're talking about social and emotional learning it happens in a social context and you know i wasn't the only one there were several of us who who kept trying to reinsert that um but you know there was definitely that kind of tension between see the brain-based thing also tends to universalize it and I guess the question that's not asked is back to the what's it for, you know? What, why are we doing this? How's it? What's what's what are the outcomes really? Like that we're all going to be happy, or what are we going to use it for? Or <laughs> well, as as you said before, well, it's quite a reductive um, interpretation of emotions. <laughs> it's decontextualizing certainly depoliticizing uh our discussion of emotions our understanding of them and and treating them as competencies or skills mm. sort of yeah. detached from any mm. particular context or any clear set of social mm. let alone political mm. or ethical uh objectives mm. and you know sort of outside the door of mgip in india what's going on there was a young Indian student who took up Greta Thunberg's Fridays for the Future campaign and was trying to um, organize something similar in India. What happened to her? She was arrested within India. Um, so that sort of, you know, activism over climate change, over something that, as we were saying, you know, is a significant cause of youth anxiety all around the world, that was actually being criminalized. But I mean, you know, the, the Indian government and its uh, attitude towards, you know, public debate of contentious issues, um, in opposition, uh, how it I, deals I think, with opposition uh, to government policy. I mean, how does that affect yeah. the way that some somewhere like the like MGIEP mm -hmm. deals? With I think, yeah, I think uh, over about seven years I was in India. Generally speaking, um, I think people got a strong message that you know any dissent of government initiatives would not be tolerated. I think, you know, there are lots of uh, very violent crackdowns of student protests or, you know, other kinds of protests. But we didn't talk about it because we celebrated youth 
but you know we didn't encourage them to like dissent if we were if mjp had encouraged young people to you know take action in that way i think it, it would have been regarded as too political or politically motivated and young people in general didn't see us as radical in any way even though we we were trying to define ourselves as very radical in reality we weren't because we didn't say anything that could be threatening to the government at any level and of course it's very important for UN agencies to work well with the governments um, so I felt a real dilemma of doing a meaningful work on what I understood as uh, transformative education. I mean, there's an irony there, of course, in the fact that this particular institute is named after Mahatma Gandhi, who's particularly famous for uh, protests. I mean, if anyone exemplifies active citizenship, uh, or the peaceful expression of active citizenship and opposition to government, you know, surely he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, also, uh, to be fair, you know, Mahatma Gandhi had a lot to say about mindfulness and about how social change uh, is related to um, self-governance. And so what it seems that, you know, MGIP has done is to take that sort of inner-directed aspect of Gandhi's message and just basically, you know, ignore the rest so that Gandhi becomes uh, a depoliticized mindfulness guru rather than a, a sort of exemplar of active citizenship and pursuit of social political change. Yeah. yeah. But what's it in service of? I mean, this is, I think this is one of the issues there. And I, I work with a lot of young activists now. Um, and it's interesting, and Gandhi is a is a icon for them as well. Uh, and and speaking about you know what was happening in India, that's been increasingly happening in Australia as well. They put, brought down some very draconian laws on activists to to, to limit their capacity to take action. And in fact, I was in court for one of them. Um, few months ago, a couple of months ago. Uh, but, you know, the limiting action on this stuff is actually exacerbating the anxiety. <laughs> I mean, I argue that it's that, that the way that you deal with trauma is you become hypervigilant and you have to take action to prevent it. You know, that's, that's a natural repercussion and the only way you're going to deal with that is by taking action. But in relation to... The, the you know principles of mindfulness and and the Gandhian approach that was always um in a framework within India of sadhana of of a, this is a, this is a practice this is a spiritual practice that's not simply to calm down the emotions I mean that's part of it but for, but for a purpose to enhance your capacity to make change, you know, and not just for an individual, but but for your community overall, to enhance your, it's not like, 
whatever the notions of enlightenment that come in, it's not. It's never about a kind of personal thing. It's about improving the the, the world, um, and so that practice. Yes, it is about being able to manage emotions, but in order to enlarge your capacity to be of service, you know, and Gandhi was was a, a total exemplar of that, of service to others. Um, yeah, but that's know, kind of And particularly lost. for confronting, uh, uh, you know, threats to, 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 to humanity. <laughs> Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, but but uh, I mean, do you think, I mean, partly perhaps what has happened is that um, some of these Indian ideas or practices around mindfulness have uh, acquired a lot of um, popularity in North America, in particular in the West. Um, uh, and um, that has, in a way, sort of, enhance their legitimacy within India, but the form that they take in the West um, is, you know, generally, uh, well, a little bit superficial, shall we say? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 that all of, all of what you were just discussing, the sort of relationship between mindfulness practices and social transformation, the social context, but also the sort of spiritual grounding of these practices that tends to be lost mm. and what you end up with is what um i, I believe he's called sadguru uh, one of the um more successful yogic practitioners who's, who's acquired a following in north america calls inner engineering <laughs> so the idea that you can uh you know achieve self-mastery through these practices and by virtue of that then become a more successful individual mm-hmm. um you know and and the focus is on the transformation of the individual but not really the implications of that mm-hmm. for uh, the wider community or for society that sort of interpretation of mindfulness has then been sort of taken up by indian elites <laughs> um not just in NGIP. I mean, let, let's mm. not focus too much on them, but I mean, mm. more broadly. Mm. Um, and that helps to explain perhaps why uh, that interpretation of mindfulness is something that an organization like NGIP then latches onto because it knows that it'll have an appeal. Mm. Yeah. And I think it also, still, I mean, <sighs> The, the impacts of colonialism are still kind of with us and it's still, it still sticks with me that I, you know, when I first went to India to work with a, my yoga teacher there, I was sort of taken to, um, it, it, there was, it was a factory that he was invited to, to a, an event. Uh, I think it was appreciation of, of you know, annual uh, bonuses, or I can't remember what it was for for the workers there, and we were kind of trotted in as the visiting dignitaries from overseas, and there, there was always that sense that something from overseas was better, you know, uh, and especially well, 
in my case, only from Australia, but, you know, things from America are always going to be better. There was always that kind of sense of we need to be validated by that, which is, yeah, which is that's still in the mix. There's still those influences that are still being worked through really to to where where do we get to uh, an equal valuing and a a clear, clear, whatever a clear understanding is. And maybe yeah. that's partly why a version of mindfulness that has been endorsed by, you know, uh, American influencers or, I don't know, Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> that's going to um, <clears throat> achieve more legitimacy to some extent yeah. back in India. Because, yeah. hey, yeah, the American, even the Americans think this is a good idea. Mm. You know, there must mm. be something in this. Mm. Maybe that's... Mm. Yeah, just just yeah. out of interest, coming back to to the ESD, I do see in young people in particular a critique of individualism. Uh, and in fact, I was in a, a forum for the Climate Psychology Alliance last year, um, and one of the speakers was a young woman from Africa. And she was a graduate student of psychology and she was talking very powerfully from her own experience of of learning about environmental issues uh, that, you know, there needs to be a challenge to psychology around the emphasis on individualism because it doesn't serve us anymore. We need a collective psychology in order to confront and face and deal with the issues that are before us. Um, so maybe it'll come around. I think we like didn't talk about is uh, MJP's another focus, which is digital learning or digital pedagogy. Whatever is fascinating for like Silicon Valley elites also fascinates uh, the MJP leadership. Mm-hmm. Partly because of the big uh, tech industry in India and all the Indian elites are, you know, in that field, essentially, because most most Indian elites are also engineers mm-hmm. who went to like IITs, Indian Institutes of Technology. And, you know, there's a lot of fascination with technology, which goes hand in hand with fascination with like yoga and mindfulness. As a yoga practitioner and as a psychologist, would you say we can teach like mindfulness through online learning? <sighs> There's certainly lots of attempts to do it. There's apps and things here too. And I, and I yeah, look, whereas what I learned from my Indian teacher was it has to be individualized um, and that doesn't tend to happen on apps and it has, and it's in the relationship as well. Look, I think, you know, there's some democratisation that happens through the use of apps and things that people can say, okay, so I can access this. It doesn't, you know, doesn't have to be you. And there's some evidence that um, we have a thing here called Smiling Mind that they seem to be helping young people learn to meditate. But it's still something that's commodified, I guess. It's something that's sort of to make your life easier and help you manage things. It doesn't ask the big questions, you know, that we've been saying, actually, if we want to 
address the big issues that are affecting young people, we need to ask the bigger questions, I think. But but in terms of um, IT generally, you know, we've had a huge experiment over the, the pandemic of moving to online classes. You know, I was still at the university at that time. We just put everything online and, and I, I did it. I was teaching education for sustainability and we were supposed to do field trips and things and I'm like, how am I going to do this? Um, <laughs> you know, we kind of managed. But what the university learned was the students didn't like it. They wanted to come to class. We'd been telling them that for years as they were trying to push us online and then suddenly they realised, oh, yes, now we're all kind of going back. I mean, issues in schools that were similar. What we've some I have to say some kids uh, did well from it, and particularly kids who had difficulty connecting with other kids in school, you know, they did quite well on the technology. But, you know, others really lost their way and there's still a, a huge um, impact for many young people. And the things that they particularly um missed and lost out on were the social connections that that there's something about the real social connections that you need to learn social emotional skills who would have thought (laughs) Mm. yeah well that's yeah that's that's uh, fascinating um i mean just before we finish i thought uh, and perhaps this is more of a comment than a question but we've discussed you know how social and emotional learning is, you know, sometimes uh, reduced to an approach to socialization that sort of leaves the politics out uh, or, you know, ineffectively sort of atomizes students and and, uh, promotes this message that, you know, their problems, their stresses, their traumas are something to be dealt with, you know, internally it's all in the mind rather than out there in society but i mean there is also perhaps uh you know a more sinister application of social and emotional learning um that you know involves invoking uh the the need to teach emotions as skills, as competencies in the service of a quite explicit political goal. And I'm thinking here of China um, Mm -hmm. and some work that uh, uh, I'm currently doing um, with with a colleague on gratitude education. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Is gratitude Mm -hmm. a competency? Is gratitude Mm -hmm. a skill? Uh, and you know this is something that is being promoted now in Hong Kong where of course uh, there were big protests led by young people in 2019 to 2020 where there are you know multiple serious causes of youth discontent Uh, but the government's response to that um, and it actually brought out a blueprint for youth late last year the government's response to that is 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 effectively a big campaign of social and emotional learning, or what in mainland China they like to uh, uh, talk of as thought reform. 
So, you know, we need to teach young people to be hopeful and grateful, um, so forth. Uh, yeah, without fundamentally transforming the the problems with society mm. and, the, you know, the lack of agency that young people experience, which were the causes of that discontent in the first place. Mm. Maybe that's a subject for discussion in a future episode. Yeah, yeah, that's really worrying. You know, in whose hands and for what purpose? If it's about teaching conformity and there's various ways in which it's done, that's problematic. Which is, and you were talking about collectivism earlier. That mm -hmm. is one interpretation of, you know, the shift from individual to collective, which. Yeah, that's, that's not what I meant, but but you see how things that's can, how it can be co-opted. Yeah, it's, it's got to be about diversity and celebrating diversity and being able to encompass all of it which, you know, I'd rather adopt the values of the Earth Charter than <laughs> I think that would be pretty incredible because you've got the democracy in there and the voices and the uh, affirmation of diversity um, while understanding that we're together and we need to manage things together. Well, that's great, Brenda. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, sparing the time to talk to us. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, it's great to connect up. <laughs> <laughs>